Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Angèle Alain. Join us as we showcase treasures from our digital collections, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. Rebel, imposter, knitter, Heartthrob, all words not typically associated with Canadian historical figures. Library and Archives Canada's Double Take exhibition provides an up-close and personal look at some of Canada's most prominent men and women, demonstrating that not all personalities fit the mild-mannered, self-effacing stereotype that Canadians are so frequently subject to. The remarkable people featured in the exhibition come from all walks of life, regions, and the past and present. Some are well-known, others will be. Today we are talking with Carolyn Cook, a curator at Library and Archives Canada. Carolyn is the curator of the Double Take exhibition. She will talk to us about some of the people included in the exhibition, their portraits, accompanying documents, and reveal stories about the subjects ranging from thievery, exploitation and scandal, to glorious achievement. Hi Carolyn, thanks for joining us today. So what is the Double Take exhibition all about? What, what does Double Take mean? Well, Double Take, the idea behind it is that there's a lot more to a person than what you see on first glance. Um, so the idea is to allow people to sort of delve into the stories behind individuals. So it's a traveling exhibition that we've just created that's um, on tour right now. That includes um, approximately 100 works that represents over 50 individuals. And it really is story driven. So we're looking, um, we're trying to allow visitors to peer behind the facade of these people um, and learn sort of lesser known facts or surprising facts um, about these people who are sort of part of the general um, Canadian history, um, but we might not know different facets of them. So we have. The works span approximately four centuries. It starts with some of early explorers like Jacques Cartier and Samuel de Champlain and goes all the way up to contemporary icons like David Suzuki and Joni Mitchell. So a double take is two sides of that person. Two sides or multiple sides as okay. well. Um, I think that the opinions, the perceptions of people change throughout time and, and across communities depending on who is, is looking at the individual. So how did you come up with the concept? for this exhibition? Well, we really wanted to be able to highlight the, the breadth and diversity of the portrait collection at Library and Archives Canada. Um, and at the same time, we really wanted to sort of go against this persistent stereotype that we have as Canadians that we're mild-mannered, um, self-effacing, and maybe that our, our Canadian history might be a little dull. And we also wanted to go against the idea that um, portrait exhibitions often celebrate heroes. We really want to um, have individuals that attract multiple um, opinions and perceptions, um, contrasting opinions as well, um, so that we could allow visitors to to have a conversation about these individuals and, and maybe question their own assumptions about them. Okay, so how does this exhibition uh, that is available on site, also available online, how does it fit uh, Library and Archives Canada's modernized approach to reach out to more Canadians? 
Well, as a traveling exhibition, we're trying to bring these amazing pieces of Canadian history into communities across the country um, and, and bring it to where the people are. As opposed to having people come, come to Come here us. to Ottawa, yeah. that's right. And also having it available online, anybody can open up their computer and have a look at the portraits um, that we have on our website. And is it going to be available online forever? Or? It's going to be available online for the duration of the exhibition. Okay. Um, so for another little while. So I encourage everybody to go and have a look at these amazing works. So you can either see it on site and walk through it, or you can go look at the images online. That's right. Okay. What type of material is included? Um, are they all portraits? Yeah, we have, um, as I said, almost 100 portraits, but it ranges from um, oil paintings to sculpture. We have video and caricatures. So a portrait is not just a photograph. That's right. We have all different types of media. And what's great about the exhibition as well is we really wanted to demonstrate that, yes, we have this amazing national portrait collection, but of course there's an amazing um, collection here at Library and Archives Canada, including documentary heritage. So at the end of the exhibition, we have a computer interactive where visitors can actually learn more about the stories of these individuals. And we have some amazing pieces in our collection. For instance, a letter that was written by Louis Riel the day before he was hanged, to his, his, written to his wife and children. So you can look at that letter in the computer interactive. Um, or you can see Dr. Frederick Banting's um, First World War attestation papers. So it's really meant to sort of pique your curiosity and, and um, encourage you to continue to look at these stories. I think it's um, pieces of a puzzle that people can continue to explore and, and do more research and find out more little-known facts about these individuals. And a lot of the interpretation in the exhibition is meant to be a little provocative. Um, again, to pique encourage... Curiosity. To encourage, yeah, pique curiosity and encourage dialogue um, between visitors, and uh, I think it, it definitely accomplishes that. I guess it would pique curiosity about the stories in this exhibition, but also about uh, the other records that you can dig up online and at Library and Archives Canada. If you're interested in what you're seeing, you might want to go further and do more research. That's right, and this is, again, just the tip of the iceberg. We're covering over 50 individuals, but of course Canadian history has a lot more different uh, interesting stories and, and people um, that you can continue to explore online. So how does someone choose which Canadian to include in the exhibition? How, how do you do that? Well, it was definitely a difficult process, but we wanted to bring out some of the gems of our collection, as well as bring out some works that we've never been able to show before, right. um, which is really exciting for us. Um, but again, this isn't sort of a top 50 list. It's really um, people who have interesting stories, and we wanted to show, again, span four centuries, different types of media, um, and represent different types of indi individuals. But in particular, we want to embrace people and events that attract multiple and often contrasting or opposing positions. So polarizing figures, which I think um, makes it interesting in terms of uh, people's own assumptions and, and creating dialogue amongst the visitors. So let's say I can't attend the exhibition. Can you tell us what it looks like for those of us who can't go? The idea is really a focus on encounter. We want you to sort of stumble upon these individuals. Some of them might be well-known to you, others not so well-known, but maybe they should be. Um, so as you go through, what we've done is created, there are some standalone portraits, but oftentimes um, they're juxtaposed 
sort of two, two facets of one individual. For instance, somebody like Grey Owl, we have this amazing photograph of Grey Owl um, by photographer Josef Karsh, juxtaposed with an image of the young Archibald Bellany, which is, of course, his, his true identity right next to it. So it's meant for you to, to look at both images, and you see there's a story there. You might not know who Grey Owl is, mm-hmm. but it makes you kind of go up and, and try to, to solve what this, this mystery is. Um, we've also created groupings around individuals somebody like Sir John A. MacDonald, um, first prime minister. Of course, opinions of him have changed quite a bit over time, and we have a, a huge wealth of images of Sir John A. MacDonald in our collection, and some amazingly personal objects as well, like um, a gold locket that contains a daguerreotype of a young Sir what's John a, What's a daguerreotype? A daguerreotype is, is an early type of photograph. Um, and it's, it's an amazing personal object because this was a locket that also contained an image of his son um, and it would have been worn by his wife at the time. So these amazing personal objects as well as some political portraits like a campaign poster for one of his um, electoral campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it, it's meant for you to stand in front of these different images of one individual um, and analyze sort of what was the intent behind the portraits and and why were people portrayed in a certain way at a specific time. And if I walk up to one of those portraits, um, what's the the type of description that I can read? It's a fairly interpretive exhibition, so what we have um, are some extended labels for all the various portraits um, that include stories. And what we've done, because there's a lot to read in the exhibition, is we start out the caption with three Um, descriptors for the individual, so three nouns. Um, Two of them might be more expected, and a third would be sort of unexpected, maybe a bit more sensationalistic to try to to prompt you to to read the rest of the text. How much work is involved in picking three words to describe a human being? There's definitely a lot of of work, and of course there's more than three words to describe anybody, Mm -hmm, so it's challenging (laughs) to narrow it down, but what we did try to do is um, sort of start with, with the known. So somebody um, like Sir Johnny MacDonald, you start off with, you know, fir- first prime minister or prime minister, um, and then you move on to perhaps the third word, which we have is, is bon vivant, because um, he liked to to uh, imbibe quite a bit. And mm. <laughs> um, so, of course, this is sort of a, a fun, lighthearted way of, of looking at Canada's first prime minister, which is obviously a... a uh, serious subject, but again, we're trying to make these people relatable to, uh, to the visitor. They're all human. They're yeah. all human, exactly, yeah. which I think is what makes it very interesting. And even somebody like um, hockey goaltender Jacques Plante, um, who we, we know as a, as a sportsman, but mm-hmm. the last word for him is knitter, because he loved to knit. His mother taught him how to knit when he was young. <laughs> really? And yes, and that's how he <laughs> calmed his nerves before games. So it's very interesting. And he always wore a toque, um, sort of his trademark, and that was something that he would have knit for himself. That's amazing. Yeah. Who knew that? <laughs> I see that you've chosen a photograph of Kim Campbell to represent the exhibition. How did you decide on that image? Well, we chose Kim Campbell sort of as a signature image for the exhibition um, because I think it's a fairly well-known portrait. It's the photograph that was taken by Barbara Woodley in in 1990, a black and white image of Kim Campbell, who was then Justice Minister. Um, She's posed actually in a strapless gown, but she's bare-shouldered and she's hanging her um, Queen's Council robes or holding her Queen's Council robes in front of her on a hanger. Um, And this image is actually 
probably one of the most notorious images of a Canadian politician, which is a bit difficult to understand in today's terms, I think. Um, but many people considered the bare-shouldered portrait inappropriate, and she was actually dubbed Canada's Madonna, which again, if you think of the context of the early 90s and what Madonna was doing at the right. time versus what we think of be Lady for Gaga, King Campbell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, a bit, it's a bit of a different or maybe a sort of stretch. Um, but it was, it was very interesting what happened um, in terms of the process of how the portrait was taken is that artist Barbara Woodley was in the midst of creating a book of, of photographs um, of inspirational Canadian women and she went to photograph Kim Campbell and her idea was to actually pose her in, with her cello, she's quite an accomplished cellist as well. Um, but Kim Campbell had already posed for an image um, with that sort of setup and so she suggested that she wear her robes. But Barbara Woodley had already photographed um, court, Supreme Court Justice Beverly McLaughlin wearing her black robes. So together they decided that maybe instead she should hold the robes in front of her on a hanger, and so she wore this strapless gown. But of course, the publicity that came out after this was, was she wearing anything right, behind you can't these? See the gown. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Um, so she was, the image was picked up internationally, and even British tabloids were calling her Canada's national pinup girl. Um, which again is, is kind of interesting in today's um, context. But we really thought this image captured the idea of double take because again, the, the story almost doesn't match up with the image. Mm -hmm. um, but also when you look at, at the image, it's fairly striking and you see this contrast of this sort of female symbol of the bare shoulders with a traditionally male symbol of the, the robes right. in front of her. Also the bare shoulders, it's, it's vulnerable and then the other side is the powerful side of, of justice. I'm guessing that's also, a that's what I would bring out of it. It would be that double take of that. Exactly. And it's also interesting to think of how male politicians are portrayed and um, perceived in contrast to, to female politicians, right. I think. Right. I understand there's uh, recordings that go with the different portraits of, of Canadians. Um, can you talk to us about those recordings? Yeah, we were fortunate enough to conduct some short interviews with a handful of the people represented in the exhibition. Okay. Um, and so this includes people like Buffy St. Marie and David Suzuki. Um, and then of course we have one with Kim Campbell and it's great because she speaks about the process of taking this photograph, but then also sort of the repercussions of it and how it impacted her political career. And what's, what's really interesting is um, pollster Angus Reid um, has come out and said that uh, they believe the photograph was the single most important factor in Campbell's rise to prominence, political prominence, and she eventually became Canada's first female prime minister. So in a lot of ways, this single image had a huge impact on her career. The first publication of Barbara Woodley's photo was actually in an exhibition in Vancouver in a bank lobby at the end of 1990, and the reaction was very warm to all of her photos, and mine was one of the favorites, but nobody thought it shocking or surprising. But when her book was finally published at the end of 1992, and the exhibition was presented at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, the context was completely different, because then there was all sorts of speculation that Brian Mulroney would be stepping down and that I might be one of the candidates to succeed him. So context was everything, and it was quite a scandal, so to speak. But 
I think what made the photograph interesting to people was the interesting juxtaposition of the softness of a woman's bare shoulders, maybe even vulnerability of that, in contrast to the Queen's Council robes that I was holding that represented a profession often seen as very male-dominated and very powerful. And I think that contrast, that juxtaposition of images, made the photograph really quite eloquent in many people's minds and memorable. Would I do it again? Absolutely. It was a great pleasure to work with the artist, Barbara Woodley, like many interesting images. It came about by accident, how to use my Queen's Council robes without my actually wearing them. And it was a lot of fun. And as I've often said to people, I've seen the Queen Mother showing more skin than I was showing in that picture. It wasn't the least bit naughty. It was interesting and underlined the fact that I was the first woman minister of justice, but that women were entering into fields that had traditionally been seen the domain of men. So it's interesting to listen to Kim Campbell's reaction to the perception of this portrait. But of course, the artist herself, Barbara Woodley, had her own reaction to this public perception. I think she was quite surprised um, that people thought this way about um, the image of Kim Campbell. Um, and she actually went as far as saying that she thought the, the public who was looking at this image did not necessarily understand um, the symbols, the artistic symbols that were used in the image. You've also included former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. What is his photograph all about? What's the story behind it? Well, it's interesting to compare both the portrait of Kim Campbell and Jean Chrétien because in some ways they're sort of the antithesis of the formal official portrait of a politician. Um, what's interesting with the portrait of Jean Chrétien is that he was also an active participant in the creation of the image. It's part of a series of works that were done by um, photographer Andrew Danson, and they're actually called unofficial portraits. Um, and what he did was he went in and photographed um, over 60 politicians in their offices okay. um, on Parliament Hill. And it's really a collaborative effort with um, the subjects. Uh, what he would do is he would actually go in, set up the offices, maybe move some furniture, um, pieces of, of art or things in the office to create a setup. Um, and then he would leave the politician like Jean Chrétien alone in the office with the shutter release. And it was up to him to take various portraits of himself. So they, he was instructed to you know, take as long as he needed um, and photograph himself maybe a dozen times. Um, what's interesting with the portrait of Jean Chrétien is the story, in a way, is the process, not just the final image. Um, apparently, Jean Chrétien understood that the image needed some, some drama, maybe some humor. Um, so he, across his various portraits, actually moved around the room um, and, and did some creative stuff. Um, apparently, after he took four or five images, he came back out of the office and said to the artist, Andrew Danson, I really don't know what else to do. And he said, oh, just go back in, think about it. I'm imagining Jean Chrétien doing yoga yeah. in his office for <laughs> would, a reason or another. That would be a great pose. <laughs> that would be a great pose. But what's interesting is that Andrew Danson didn't know what he did okay. until he actually developed the contact sheet. Um, and apparently, he was... Jean Chrétien was quite creative. Um, he got down on the ground and knelt in front of his bearskin rug. Apparently he took his, he has this Inuit sculpture in his office and he stared it directly in the face. In another shot, he put on glasses and pretended to be reading a book. And so what's interesting is that he selected the final pose that he did in the series. Um, and in the image, he's sitting in a chair, sort of right at the front of, of the image. 
Um, and in the background, he has this polar bearskin rug on the, on the floor, um, and he has an Inuit sculpture to the side, and he's staring directly at uh, the viewer in this very kind of serious pose, and he's making the Boy Scout salute. So it's kind of humorous but serious at the same time. Um, and then in terms of the story of Jean Chrétien, what's interesting is in doing my research, I found out that he was actually kicked out of the Boy Scouts. So it's kind of an ironic pose as right. well as he's doing this Boy Scout salute. And, you know, he had such a, a lengthy career in Canadian politics, um, but he was known as sort of this scrappy little guy from Schwinnigan. You know, mm -hmm. we, we know him as, as the, the prime minister that put a chokehold on, on one of the protesters at an event. Right. Um, so you can imagine maybe why he got kicked out of the Boy Scouts. You know, he was he was known for his his fights. So is that the the point of the double take in this case? Yeah, that's sort of the idea of the double take. It's um, again the, the image stops you in your tracks. I think when you go by it. Um, so there's that double take, but at the same time, the idea of a politician who's also this sort of scrappy person. Another well-known and political Canadian that's included in the exhibition is Romeo Dallaire. Can you tell us how he fits in the story of the exhibition? Sure. I think um, this image in particular is very striking. It's a large-scale pencil drawing of Romeo Dallaire um, by Elaine Goebel, and it's a fairly recent acquisition for Library and Archives Canada. Um, it's, it's a very striking image because it's a closely cropped um, portrait where you just see his face and he's, he's staring off to one side sort of lost in his thoughts and I think for a lot of people when you come up to this image you might not recognize who it is but you have this emotional reaction to it because it's it's very um, sort of solemn um, of course Romeo Dallaire in 1994 took command of the United Nations peacekeeping mission in the midst of civil war in Rwanda um, and without adequate means to intervene, General Dallaire was unable to stop what was essentially the slaughter of 800,000 people over 100 days. Um, of course, eventually he did convince UN authorities to take action, but ultimately it was too little too late. Mm -hmm. And I think you really see those haunting thoughts in his eyes, and it's, it's very well captured in this portrait. And I guess if you know the story, uh, you kind of can guess what he's thinking about, and if you don't, you want to know. Exactly. And what's really interesting about this work um, is it was created as part of a program called Star Portraits in which um, three established artists were given the task of um, creating a portrait of one celebrity. And at the end, they, the artists are given about two weeks to create these portraits, and at the end, the celebrity gets to look at them and react to them and, and pick one for their own collection. And Romeo Dallaire actually had a very interesting reaction to this portrait in particular. And while he, he loved the actual work of art itself, he found it too difficult to look at mm -hmm. um, because it, it really does show that, that uh, pain and remorse. All right. Um, what are the three words associated to the portrait? Um, so the three words we've chosen for uh, Romeo Dallaire are soldier, um, humanitarian, because of course he, is, um, he was appointed to the Senate in 2005 and he's become a fervent advocate of, uh, for victims of genocide. Mm -hmm. And then the third is witness, um, because I think it really um, accompanies this portrait quite well because you can see, again, it's, it's the memories um, in his mind right. of witnessing such a, a devastating right. trauma. Like Kim Campbell, Romeo Dallaire's portrait is accompanied by an audio recording. What does he speak about? 
So we asked um, Romeo Dallaire to react to his portrait, um, what it makes him feel, because I think a lot of visitors, as you see the portrait, you have a, an emotional reaction. So we want to know how he felt about it. And he really speaks to the trauma of having witnessed such a horrific loss of life and ultimately his sense of failure um, in preventing it. The portrait was a surprise in how deep it was able to go inside me and bring out the incredible traumas and hurt of having witnessed such a devastating destruction of human life and mutilation and suffering that the Rwandan genocide was. And my role in, in attempting to prevent it, but ultimately unsuccessfully ended up abandoned by the international community and left to witness this horror and to keep that genocide alive. So the portrait is part of that mandate of not letting us forget how we failed these millions of Rwandans in their time of dire need. You're trying to tell stories in, in many different ways in the, the exhibition. Can you explain to us what techniques you've used to do that? Sure. I think a really good example is um, we've created groupings around certain individuals, which means we have multiple portraits of the same person um, over time and, and produced for different reasons as well, which I think standing in front of that helps tell part of the story just visually. Um, an example of this is um, our portrait grouping around the Dion quintuplets. Um, so the Dion quintuplets, most people are familiar with their very tragic story. Right. Um, of course, they were born in 1934, the five identical quintuplets um, born in a small town in Ontario, and they miraculously survived. Um, But the provincial government removed the children from their parents and placed them in a specially built hospital and home, which was known as Quintland. Um, and it, it essentially became Canada's biggest tourist attraction. Over about nine years, three million people traveled to Quintland to watch these adorable little girls in their color-coded outfits. Because there's um, five of them. Five of them, that's right. And they, you know, they each had these little, again, color-coded outfits, and they would play and, and basically pretend not to be aware of visitors, even though they were essentially yes. in a fishbowl. Right. Um, but in, in 1999, um, the Ontario government awarded the three surviving sisters $4 million dollars in compensation for their uh, nine years of exploitation. So it's a very tragic story that's fairly well known. There have been books and films mm -hmm. um, done about, about the quintuplets. Um, so it was, it was important to treat this in a, in a very sensitive way as well because it is such a tragic story. But why would you pick that story in the first place? Well, I think, again, it's, it's the idea of not just glorifying heroes and events, that right. our history is marked by all different types um, of events. And I think it's important to remember some of the, uh, the tra more tragic stories and, and these stories of exploitation. Um, so what we have done for the Dion Quintuplets is we have a number of works together. Um, we have a, a photograph of them as, as babies um, with one of their doctors. Um, we also have this quite large-scale ad, because their images were used for a lot of different ephemera, different marketing. You see the exploitation of them as, as such young children. Um, and then we also have this um, oil painting by Andrew Loomis that was done in 1950, and he was sort of the official artist for the Dian Quintuplets. And his works um, created the basis for a calendar, which would have been sold. 
Um, and the, the image that we have um, is one of, of the paintings that was used for the calendar. It's called Out for Fun, and it um, portrays the five girls as teenagers around a campfire, roasting hot dogs and playing guitar and singing. So it's this very idealized, joyous moment, which of course is in Would stark contrast. Yeah. yeah, in stark contrast to what their actual lives were like. There's no campfire in a fishbowl. That's right. right. That's right. And what we've done is then juxtaposed these images of exploitation um, with a more contemporary portrait that was done actually by Brian Adams, a photograph um, from 1999 that was part of a book that he published. Um, but in that portrait, it shows the three surviving sisters. Um, it's a very sort of stark image. They're dressed in, in dark black and gray suits on this white staircase. And you see they're sitting very closely together and it's a, as if sort of their solidarity, the three of them together is their only way of surviving and going through life. Um, and this photograph was actually taken um, the year after they had uh, been awarded the compensation from the Ontario government. Yes, that is a tragic story in Canadian history, one to be remembered. Most of us are familiar with Joni Mitchell's career in music, but what don't we know about her? What's her double take? I think a lot of us know her as the folk singer, um, but in fact she considers herself first and foremost an artist. Um, she did study art, although she dropped out of art school to pursue her music career, but she's maintained her painting career throughout um, her life. And in fact, the portrait that we have is another um, photograph done by Barbara Woodley, and Joni Mitchell is posed sitting on the floor in front of one of her paintings. So you can see that she's chosen to represent herself more as a visual artist as opposed to a musician. Mm. Um, but of course, she went on <clears throat> to have this amazing career um, and skyrocketed to stardom with songs like Big Yellow Taxi, Woodstock, or Both Sides Now, which is what we know her for. But what's interesting about Joni Mitchell is at the age of nine, um, she contracted polio, um, which has permanently impacted the strength in her left arm. And so this has actually, which, yes, her left arm is what she would have been uh, holding down the cords yeah, with. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Which is difficult, right, if you don't have much strength in that hand. And so because of that, she had to sort of compensate and create her own um, cord positions or positioning of her fingers on the fretboard. Mm -hmm. um, so she has quite a unique style, but it also affected sort of the, the pacing of her rhythms, which tend to actually lean more towards jazz rhythms as opposed to the, fo the folk and the sort of soft rock that we might think she does. And that impacted her career. I mean, she went on to, to record jazz albums and even did a collaboration with jazz great Ch um, Charles Mingus. Hmm. I actually read a really interesting um, interview with Joni Mitchell where she said that one time she met artist, American artist Georgia O'Keeffe, um, who was sort of an inspiration to her as well. And Georgia O'Keeffe said to her, you know, you're going to have to make a decision between do you want to be an artist or do you want to be a musician because you really can't be both. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, no, I will be both. And <laughs> <laughs> she has been. It's, it's really amazing. After putting this exhibition together, who stands out? Who do you think was the most interesting or the most surprising? Well, one of my favorites in terms of stories, because really it, it runs the gamut between inspiring stories, provocative stories, and also from the tragic to the lighthearted. So I'm going to focus on a lighthearted story that I really enjoy and visitors seem to, to relate to as well. And that's um, Gilles Villeneuve. And of course, this year actually marks the 30th anniversary yeah. of his death, um, tragic death in a car crash when he was um, in a qualifying race for the Belgian Grand Prix. And now when Gilles Villeneuve began his racing career, he was a struggling young mechanic. 
um, who couldn't really afford a lot of tools to work on the cars. So apparently he, he borrowed or stole <laughs> tools from Canadian Tire. Um, but he, I think, always had this guilt about it and he always wanted to repay the debt. So after his career took off, um, and he obviously went on to win um, six Grand Prix races, he repaid the debt with a $9,000 check he delivered to the store. And his managers also arranged for a ghostwriter to do a column using Villeneuve's name so that the, the Canadian Tire store could collect on his publicity value. I wonder That's what the person who received the check must have been thinking. Yeah. Uh, donation? No, actually. <laughs> that seems like a truly Canadian thing to yeah, do. Yeah, very polite. Know? Very polite, very polite. So um, I find that very interesting. And the image that we've selected is a photograph by Alain de la Plante from 1979. And it's a, it's a close-up of um, Gilles Villeneuve waiting at a start line of a race in his car. And you can see the focus in his eyes. But what's also quite interesting is um, he was always sponsored by the company's Marlboro, which is a cigarette company, mm -hmm. and, and Labatt Breweries. And so you always see these logos prominently displayed here on his helmet. Um, but ironically, I've read that Gilles Villeneuve never drank or smoked. Um, but of course, he was a walking billboard for these companies. Right. So how does a, a race car driver fit in this exhibition? What's the double take in this case? Is it the fact that he wasn't drinking or smoking and, and he was promoting this? Yes, and I, well, I think, again, it's we see um, this race car driver and we think of strength and speed and... Mm -hmm. um, control. Control, yeah. And at the same time, to me, it, it's sort of his, his um, politeness and responsibility of paying back this debt that he owed because, again, he didn't have a lot of money as a, a young man who was working on these cars and he stole these tools but really wanted to repay the debt to the company. We've discussed a lot more contemporary Canadian figures in this exhibition. Are there historical figures included as well? Yes, um, the works span approximately four centuries. We've got some prints of explorers Jacques Cartier and Samuel de Champlain. And actually one of our earliest works dates from 1771 and it's a beautiful portrait of Francis Brooke um, who's actually considered to have written the first um, Canadian novel. Really? Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. And in a way it was a, sort of a promotional piece to encourage um, Britons to visit the colony that maybe we weren't so backwards after all. <laughs> Um, and we also have fantastic oil paintings of uh, James Wolfe mm -hmm. um, and the Marquis de Montcalm. Excellent. And all these works are available at Library and Archives Canada? They're all part of the collection? All these works are part of uh, the collection of Library and Archives Canada. We do have one fabulous loan um, that's part of this exhibition, um, which is a loan from the Confederation Centre Art Gallery in Charlottetown, and it's Edward Poitras Some Were Heroes, which is a contemporary installation, um, portrait of Louis Riel, and it's actually a very sort of ghostly image um, that's on a darkened light box, which is hung from a black noose. So it's a very dramatic piece, um, but it's part of a grouping, again, around Louis Riel, um, the Métis leader. And it's interesting to see the perspective from an Aboriginal artist right. um, versus other depictions we have of Louis Riel. What would you say is the overall message in this exhibition? What can somebody take away from it? Um, I think the idea that an image is worth a thousand words is quite true, mm -hmm. and um, I think on first glance you might have one impression of a person, but there's so much more to the backstory. Um, and I think what I'm hoping is that people learn a lot of interesting facts, and it creates dialogue. That you go home and you say, "Hey, did you know this about this person?" And um, 
you realize that Canadian history has is full of really interesting stories. And portraits, in a way, are, are a window to this story. Um, but there's so much more, so much wealth of information that's held at an institution like Library and Archives Canada. And so I'm hoping people will, will continue their own research. And the other thing that I find interesting is those three words you've chosen. People might say, oh, yeah, I knew the first one. Ah, yeah, I knew the second one. But the third one made me look at that portrait in a, in a totally different way. It's like, I find that very interesting that, you, you know, it's surprising, exactly. captivating. And I'm sure that a lot of people will challenge us on the words that we've chosen as well, which I think is, is great. We yeah. want to have that dialogue with our, between the institution and the visitors, because again, how do you narrow somebody down to three words? It's, it's impossible. Right. So I'm sure a lot of people will, will come up with their own creative ways of interpreting somebody. For people visiting online, what can they expect to see? Well, online we have actually all the works um, that are in the Double Take exhibition, um, so you can peruse through those images. And then I would also encourage people to visit our new portrait portal, which includes over 15,000 um, digitized portraits in the Library and Archives collection, and you can do some more exploration. Um, you can create your own stories. You can find own. out what the Double Take is on those too. Exactly, and you'll find a lot more portraits of some of the same individuals we've spoken about today. Um, and then I'd also suggest that um, you do an archive search because, again, there's some amazing documents that um, are, provide other pieces to the puzzle. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us about the Double Take exhibition, Carolyn. It sounds really interesting. Thanks for having me. If you would like to visit the Double Take exhibition, you can view it at the McMichael Gallery in Kleinberg, Ontario, from September 22, 2012 until February 24, 2013. For more information about the on-site exhibitions and to visit the online virtual exhibition, check out our homepage at www.bac-lac.gc.ca. On the homepage, you can also learn more about Library and Archives Canada's extensive portrait collection and access LAC's new online portrait portal featuring over 15,000 newly digitized images. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Angèle Alain, and you've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thanks to our guest today, Carolyn Cook. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at www.bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. <laughs>